episode 61 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. My name is Chris Daniel. Uh, seats, which is uh, short for single engine air tankers for a company out of Lubbock, Texas. What is going on, AV Nation? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast, episode number 61, featuring Chris Daniel. Chris and I talk about a lot of things in this episode. We talk about what it's like to be a firefighting pilot, what it's like a typical day, how many landings and takeoffs they do, what a typical load is. We just get really into it. If you've ever thought about being a firefighting pilot, this is the episode for you. We talk about the typical process that you go through. We talk about how you build your hours, how you want to get the right hours to be hired by one of these companies. And it just sounds like an amazing career. It sounds like something that you can really have a very, very successful career in. Chris and I actually know each other from a couple years ago. We met at Airwood Aviation. It was my flight school that I went to in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was a CFI there while I was training. He was not my CFI, but we both didn't know of each other there. And then fast forward a couple years to our ATP CTP class that we had to take before we took our ATP check ride. And we actually were in the same class, five people. And I happen to know one of them. It just goes to show you how small of a world the aviation world can be and it actually is. So don't burn any bridges. But yeah, Chris and I talk about a lot of great stuff in this podcast and I can't wait for you guys to hear his story and just why he is flying the type of equipment that he's flying and why he chose this over say an airline pilot or anything else in that career. Aviation, if you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on Instagram at pilot the pilot. Email me pilot the pilot HQ at gmail.com. And without further ado, I want to go ahead and get this episode started. Here's Chris Daniel. What is going on, Chris? Thanks for joining me on the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem. And uh, I don't think anyone knows this, but uh, we were in the same ATP CTP course where we just talked about how we both wasted, what, like $5,000 for five <laughs> days of absolute nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, good times, you know? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. It's, yeah, uh, definitely. We can uh, uh, we can get in and talk about that a little bit later, though. A little bit why yeah. ATP CTP and all that nonsense. But uh, first yep. thing I want to do is tell me about yourself. Tell me about why you wanted to become a pilot. When was the first time you even thought about it? Oh uh, well, uh, first thing would be that, and I grew up in aviation. Mm-hmm. I'm a sec- second generation ag- or second generation pilot. Uh, my dad is a uh, something like a 40 to 45, I think somewhere around 43 or 44 years of uh, flying professionally. Oh, cool. Uh, so I grew up in, in Northeast Louisiana. Uh, he was a ag pilot for a lot, a lot of years and yeah. eventually uh, moved into the firefighting. Was it uh, the flight. Monroe area? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, actually just north of Monroe. Oh, nice. A uh, little town called Bastrop. Oh, cool. Yeah. No idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's about 20, 20 miles north of Monroe. Yeah. Cool. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. So that's where um, uh, Duck Dynasty's from, right? Like that area, Monroe area? Yeah. They're from, uh, let's see, where are they from? They're from uh, West Monroe. Okay. Over, and uh, so I, I get that question all the time. About, <laughs> I bet. You know, are you, do you know the Duck Dynasty guys? And uh, no, I don't. <laughs> Be like, yeah, we're so, best friends. I hang out with them all the time. You don't see me yeah. on the show. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I've seen them around, yeah. and uh, of course, most of the people that are from where I'm from have grown up hunting and stuff. So we, we've known that name for way longer than you know. Yeah, I bet everybody else has. <laughs> so yeah, I can only uh, imagine. Yeah. Well, uh, so your dad was a pilot. You said he was flying some 42, 43 years professionally. When did you get the bug for aviation? Was it because of your dad? Uh, well, uh, originally, uh, aviation was not my, my first career choice. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I grew up, like I said, I grew up around it. Uh, you know, my dad was also a mechanic. So, I, you know, growing up, I spent a lot of time uh, with him in the summers, especially at the ag strip or mm-hmm. an airport, you know, riding in airplanes with him from time to time. And, uh, then in the winters, you know, I'd, I'd spend some time with him, help, helping him work on airplanes, getting them ready to go for the next, uh, next ag season. But, uh, in when through high school, I, I started working around uh, race cars, oh, cool. uh, going to dirt tracks and, and things like that. And I, 
helped some local guys there that raced local dirt tracks. And so in high school, I decided that I wanted to pursue racing as a career. Oh, that's awesome. So that's the reason I ended up in North Carolina was uh, pursuing the, the NASCAR stuff. So I, I moved out to, to North Carolina, lived in Huntersville initially, mm-hmm. uh, and went to school up in Mooresville at a NASCAR Tech. Oh, nice. Uh, That's awesome. I, I, I graduated in 2004 from high school. In October of that same year, I moved out to, to Huntersville. Yeah. And uh, pursued that for, I guess, from 2004. I graduated from 2000. Uh, graduated from NASCAR Tech, uh, and then, you know, continued to pursue the racing stuff until 2009. Um, it's probably about halfway through 2009. Uh, you know, my dad, I wasn't, I wasn't doing real well in the racing stuff. <laughs> I wasn't, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you weren't making the cut. The, <laughs> yeah. What going through the crash of 2008 and, yeah. you know, I just really, you know, wasn't doing very well with it and, uh, struggling to try to get on a team and yeah. find a job and all that stuff. And I, I just wasn't, wasn't very happy. Uh, so my dad, I think, you know, knew I was, knew I was struggling. I uh, knew I was having a hard time with some stuff and, uh, the company he worked for at the time needed some help, um, loading airplanes on ground crews and, and, things like that. So they, they called, uh, my dad called me probably about halfway through 2009 and asked me if I wanted to come work with them. And, uh, at initially I, you know, first I said, no, I said, I turned him down. I said, no, I'm just going to stay here and yeah, continue like, on. And, dad, I want to be a NASCAR driver. It's like, yeah, come on. <laughs> I want to do this. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I didn't really have aspirations of being a driver, but just, you know, working on them and stuff. Yeah. It, is what I was really going after. And, but so initially I turned down, I was like, no, you know, I just wasn't going to let it go. And went on through a few more months of just, you know, honestly not, not being happy and being mm-hmm. miserable. And I just, I finally called him back. It's probably about three or four months. And I just, I called him back. I said, you know, is that offer still available? <laughs> and, uh, he, told me he said yeah what he, he made a phone call and, and to make sure and and sure enough you know it was the opportunity was still available so it's probably november december of 2009 uh, i left north carolina mm-hmm. uh headed back to louisiana uh spent that christmas or whatever with uh, with my family there and then uh, January of 2010, actually January 1st of 2010, uh, I started my, my aviation career, I guess. So that's, that's kind of where the career yeah. part started. Is that when you started flying? Uh, I had taken a few lessons when I was probably, in my, you know, a teenager, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, didn't pursue it. Uh, and then, but so my, my pursuit of aviation as, as a career started, you know, in 2010, January, okay. like I said, January 1st. And, uh, you know, I went, the, the company that, uh, he worked for at the time, uh, they did firefighting, they did ag work, they, uh, did aerial, uh, uh tree fertilizing, which uh, is, uh, when I started with them, that's what I went to do is, is load, uh, airplanes with dry fertilizer to put out on pine trees. Okay. Dang. <laughs> so, uh, I went to, uh, the, the company that we worked for was based out of, out of Texas and, uh, a different company than what we're, what we work for now, but, uh, they were fertilizing trees in, in Florida. So, uh, my first, run with this uh, company was was in florida and uh went down there and you know really hadn't i guess hadn't really thought a whole lot about what i wanted to do you know as, as far as aviation was concerned at the time but it didn't take me long as to getting around the airplanes and getting around the pilots and and everybody to 
make the decision to, you know, if I'm going to be involved in aviation, I might as well go ahead and start pursuing being a pilot. And uh, so that's that's where that uh, that started, you know, with my entry into the aviation career. So what you're saying was, is that you would uh, load these planes with a fertilizer and then you kind of fell in love with it. You kind of realized that, hey, this is something I want to do. And then in your off time, whenever you could find a spare time, because I'm sure that was a very demanding job, you would yeah. go uh, go up and fly. Would you fly in like 172s, 152s, or would you get to fly the air tractors? No, uh, it was a many, quite a few years before I got to fly an air tractor. Yeah. Uh, but so the way the timber season uh, would, would work is you usually start towards the end of the summer, early fall, mm-hmm. and it, it goes through the winter and you, you end the season somewhere usually around the April or, or May or some, somewhere like that. So, you know, I usually had two or three months in the summer off. Okay. And so the period of time in between, you know, this, this season I was, I really didn't consider myself to have a home. Uh, so <laughs> you're a nomad. You know, exactly. Yeah. I just uh, roamed around from, you know, ta- in different <laughs> little towns doing uh, loading airplanes. Yeah. So uh, when I left work, you know, in the summer, you know, sometimes they would need some, somebody to go out and help load fire planes or something. And I would do that. But for the most part, I just, I almost exclusively worked with the timber airplanes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that left me pretty much the summer to work on certificates and ratings. Oh, cool! So I would take whatever money I'd made, you know, through the through the year, and basically go find a flight school that could, and I would call around ahead of time to try to find somewhere that could get me done. You know, could I could get in and and get done fairly quickly, so I could just knock it out when I had the time to do it. When you were making those phone calls to those flight schools, would you say that they're pretty honest with you? That they were like, hey, yeah, you can do it in this time frame? Or did they, because you know, flight schools, some of them are pretty shady. So did you find them to be pretty honorable with what they said? Or did a lot of flight schools kind of toy with you and play with you? Um, you know, I, I felt like they were fairly honest, the ones I called. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I know what you mean. Uh, I've definitely had that experience. And I, I guess... I, I must have had that a little bit of that same inclination when I was calling around because yeah. I, you know, I, I made sure, and I and I would like say my my private pilot certificate I got it in a uh, Rayville, Louisiana at a at a flight school, and I, I knew the people there. Yeah, uh, it was a it was it's no sucks. longer there. It's no <laughs> no longer there anymore. But I knew the guy who owned the flight school. I mean, he was an old family friend and everything. So. Uh, you know, I got in and, and knocked it out there. You now in my instrument rating, I went to, uh, up to Little Rock, Arkansas. And, uh, I did quite a bit of shopping around there mm-hmm. because the, I had take a, taken a few instrument flights. I just had a few days here and there and I'd taken a few instrument flights at a couple of other places and I didn't have a very good experience. <laughs> what was so, the bad experience? Well, uh, well, you, you know, it's like my instrument rating was like, uh, it's like that was probably the most challenging rating yeah. that I did in my, or the challenging, uh, training. And so I jumped in with, uh, and it was the same place that I got my private, but it was a different instructor. And, uh, and he, I, I went in with, um, with this instructor and he, I went up with him and I'm talking about like on the second flight, like he was giving me approach charts and we were in like actual IMC. Oh dang. And, uh, doing approaches over at uh, Monroe, Louisiana over at the airport. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's getting really aggravated with me about not being able to read the chart. And I'm, you know, and he, this guy didn't tell me like a day or two ahead, you know, okay, this is what we're going to do. Right. Like, and, or anything. It's like, you know, he handed me this chart and it's like, okay, we're going to go shoot these approaches. You said this was on one of your first or like your second this flight? This was like my first, maybe second, probably second flight with this guy. Dang. Talk about being thrown to the wolves. <laughs> here's an actual man, IMC. Was, uh, here's an ILS. Shoot it. 
Uh, what? I know. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, and, and I had followed a needle and a glide slope, yeah. maybe a, a couple times before, and somebody just saying follow the needle and the glide slope, you know. But you know, I had never read an approach plate. I mean, this was like you know Chinese to me. <laughs> and uh, you know, he just like he got he was get he got really aggravated with me. Interesting teaching style. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So I got, uh, anyway, I just decided with that, you know, that was probably not the way to go for yeah. me. And, uh, uh, I did some, I did some more calling around, you know, once I went back to work and when I got, you know, sure enough off of work for the summer, I had already visited, uh, the flight school at Little Rock, uh, Central Flying Service. And uh, met the guys over there and the the instructors and met the instructor that I ended up working with and had a really good experience over over there. So uh, it all worked out. And uh, but, yeah, I guess thinking about it now, you know, I, <laughs> I was just trying to think I was trying to think earlier if I've had any real bad experiences yeah. with the instructors. And it just kind of <laughs> that one just kind of came to all them, of so. a sudden it clicked like, yeah, I had a guy <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, so. that's crazy. I mean, like, that's something that you got to work your way up an instrument every time yeah. everyone I've ever talked to. It's like it's kind of like they hold your hand and then they put you into the foggles in perfectly clear conditions. But this guy's like, hey, you know what? Let's go shoot that approach that we've never talked about or never taught you how to yeah, <laughs> brief a it chart. Was a, it was, yeah, it was not fun. And, yeah. and even going, when I went to Central up in uh, Little Rock, I had some, uh, you know, the instrument training was was a real struggle for me all the way up to mm-hmm. probably about 20 hours into it. And then it, then it just clicked. What and, was uh, the struggle for you? Uh, I guess being... Like I could, I could, you know, track courses and I could, you know, track the localizer and VORs and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. I had a hard time, I guess, figuring out where I was at when I was underneath the hood. Okay. Like, I guess it was just. Uh, like situational I mean, I, awareness, like where you I are. Get, yeah. Yeah. Like I could look on the, on the map and I could look on the, you know, GPS and, you know, but my instructor, he was, uh, you know, he had other students, but he worked with his particular uh, husband and wife who were doctors, mm-hmm. and they had their own airplane. It was a 206 oh, yeah. with a G1000, and, Dang. like, it was one of the first airplanes that had the, the perspective yeah, or the synthetic vision. Not the perspective, but the synthetic vision. Okay. And uh, so – I he said, you know, why don't you come up with us and ride in the back seat? He said, I think this will help you. So he put me in the back seat and I went up and I just watched what they were doing. And that, like I said, it was probably about 15 to 20 hours into the training and something just clicked hmm. when I did that. And when I, when I could watch somebody else do it and, um, and then from then on, it was a breeze, you know, nice. and I, I did. I didn't have, I mean, I didn't have any other problems with the training. Uh, I went, uh, I took my, I was ready for my check ride ahead of time. Yeah. And uh, it was just uh, from then on, other than radio communication, <laughs> you know, the, my radio <laughs> communication and uh, through my instrument. That's natural. <laughs> it was just terrible, you know? Yeah. Oh, and, I know. Uh, Not yeah, like for my, you, but for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, uh, examiner that did my instrument check ride called me no rad (laughs) (laughs) so it was uh yeah so this so that's always something i've worked on is radio communication uh from then on and uh still not perfect at it but i'm a lot better than i used to be you know i like what you're talking about how your instructor had you sit and ride along because i think there's something to that i think that some schools like atp and some of those type of schools and some other flight schools actually practice that a lot where they'll send you up so you can kind of not be under the pressure of your training and you can kind of take a step back and kind of learn from their mistakes or you can learn from the stuff that they do well you can kind of see like oh that's what they mean because when you're in the moment when you're flying like especially when you're training you're so fixated on what's going on 
on, you can't take the, you don't have the time to necessarily like work on every single aspect that you need to work on. You know, you need to kind of just like focus on this, get better at that and focus on this. So you kind of like gradually move up where when you're seeing this from behind, you can be like, Oh, that's what he means by where I'm like, you know, that's what he means by this. So that's what that means. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I agree with that. And uh, I've had students, you know, being a CFI myself, I've had students that have gone up with me, you know, that have ridden in the back while I worked with other students, you know, whether in at similar stages in, in training and, and one one student's struggling and the other one might be a little bit better at, at this particular uh maneuver or whatever yeah. it might be and I, I think that does help um you know as long as the student that you're training doesn't as long as they can understand i'm not doing this to try to bring you down or, right show you how or, bad you are and how good this yeah guy i'm just is. you know we've all Poor been girl. yeah we've yeah. all been through these learning curves and, yeah for sure so and it, it's aviation I found and everyone that I've talked to and even myself and how I've experienced it is especially with instrument. It's like there's so much to it that it just has to click for you. And everyone has that like aha moment at a separate time and a different time. Some people have it right before their check ride. Some people have it on their first instrument ride, instrument training session. But everyone has that final moment where it's like, oh my gosh, this all makes sense. And like you said, yeah. you, it helps when you see other people and they get it and how they can do it. But it's also important to, to preface that training lesson maybe with, Hey, this guy is a little bit farther ahead than you and that's not a problem, but just learn from him, learn and kind of follow what he does and do muscle memory and go along and see what you would do and react to what he does and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For sure. Now, when you were, um, so you were around air tractors, you're around ag pilots, you're around like kind of that whole scene when you were doing your training, what was kind of the inspiration behind your training? And what I mean by inspiration is what did you want to do once you became a commercial pilot? Did you want to just want to be a CFI? Did you want to go the regional route or were you looking to get into the ag or firefighting route? Uh, no, I, I pretty well knew once I got into the, the ag world and it's like I said, the company that, that I, that I work for and the company I work for now, you know, they, they had both, you know, an ag operation and mm-hmm. they did firefighting. So I was around both of them and I knew, you know, when I got into that environment, I, I knew that my goal would eventually would be to eventually get to fly in seats, you know, yeah. the, the fire airplanes. Uh, and I also, you know, just being around the, the ag industry most of my life and being exposed to that, I, I knew that industry as well. And the two are, are, are tied together pretty closely. Right. So, you know, either way, I mean, the, but the, the fire industry, you know, when I, when I did get a chance to be around that, um, coming through, uh, you know, loading airplanes and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, I just enjoyed it so much. Uh, I enjoyed, you know, that the ag side of it too, but the fire, fire side of things, I just enjoyed that so much that I, I knew that, that was my my goal. Yeah. So what was so there's um when you become a pilot, people want to go the the regional side or the more conventional way, I should say, of regional or corporate pilot. There's kind of a set out path. You know, you need to get your commercial, you need to get your multi engine commercial, then you need to get your ATP and all that. What's kind of the pathway to becoming an ag pilot or a seats or fire pilot? What's the is there like a standard protocol or is it just like you need to network yourself and figure out your, the best way to get in on your own? Oh, well there, there kind of, there is a, kind of is a standard. Uh, I mean, not everybody gets there the same way. I mean, everybody's got, you know, their own, their own path and their Mm -hmm. own story or whatever. But the similarity is usually that most, most people that make it into the seat world come from the ag world. Okay. So, and a lot of us, uh, including myself, are still active in the in the ag world. It's not like we just left the ag world and, and <laughs> went. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, we once you get into the fire and the flying seats, then you're you're and you're full time. You're limited to what you can do in the ag world because the seasons are pretty well the same. Right. But there's a lot. There's a very close connection there, so you're really not completely removed. Um, but uh, the gen- the standard route is for somebody to 
you know, come up, you know, go through. Yeah, you, ha- you have to have an instrument rating to to fly seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'd have to go through, get your commercial pilot's license, and and have an instrument rating. And you know, typically you're going to have to find some way to get some some ag time. Okay. And uh, so, you, and a lot of the companies that are are do or have seats are also ag companies. Okay, nice. So, or, you know, a lot of them that, that maybe aren't anymore at one time were, were an ag company. So, uh, say for like, uh, in my example, I got hired with the, with the company that I worked for and I was, I had maybe 12, 1500 hours total time. Oh, dang. Is that normal for someone to have that much time? Uh, well, the, the minimums for, uh, I mean, we, we operate under a contract, uh-huh. a government contract and the minimum, um, to be able to get carded to do firefighting is like 1500 hours total time. Oh, dang. And then you've got, you know, like a, you know, a few hundred hours of mountain time, a few hundred hours of low level time. I mean, there's certain hour requirements within that, that you have to meet, but, uh you know, so I, I didn't have hardly any tailwheel time when I started with this guy. I had, a tail, <laughs> I had a tailwheel endorsement, and that was about it. Was that from Arrowwood? Uh, no, oh. it was actually from uh, the same place I got my private license. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I moved into, uh, you know, you know, got there, and they, uh, David kind of started, the, the guy I worked for is named David. uh uh-huh. He started me uh, flying in a little husky that he had, uh, and building tailwheel time, and eventually moved me into flying uh, a little Piper Brave, a little Ag airplane, and then yeah. pro- progressed me up into a five hundred two, and then eventually into an eight hundred two. So, and that's that's kind of if you talk to you know different people that have have gone through and gotten into that into the seats, you'll find. I find similar, uh, similar stories. Um, now most of them are, are much older than me. <laughs> I'm one of the, I'm probably one of the youngest ones in the, in the yeah. industry by a long shot. <laughs> uh, there's a few years of start. We're starting to see, uh, uh, you know, some younger guys come in, but yeah. the average age is probably somewhere around 60 ish, 65. Dang. So, so y'all are gonna need some pilots. <laughs> yeah, we 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 definitely. It's just like uh, a lot of other uh, avenues in aviation. You know, it's, it's yeah. a, there's a demand. There is is uh, so there's obviously demand. Um, I mean, I'm just asking this because I really have no idea. What's the pay like in something like this? Is the pay kind of uh, comparable to a lower time pilot, or does it get pretty high? Can you make a pretty good living off of it? Oh, you you can make a good living. Okay, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty good. That's uh, good. Uh, and you know, the coming up, I mean, you're going to make some pretty crappy money. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, like any uh, other job, like starting, like whether it's a regional airline well, exactly, back in the day, yeah. but aerial survey, yeah. I made like 25 grand in a year flying my butt off on a crappy 206 that I had to land on a mountain. But <laughs> that's oh, just yeah. kind of, yeah, that's yeah. just a, that's another story for another day, but you got to put your time in, you got to pay your dues. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, and by the time you get to, uh, you know, flying a seat, you've, uh, you put in the, most people put in quite a few hours to get yeah. there. And, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's good money. It's, it, you know, I mean, it's not the, not the best you can make and, yeah. you know, as a pilot, but it's definitely a lot Respectable better. Respectable and livable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. What, sorry. So let's say you just went through the ag process. You finally got, um, you're a seat pilot now. You're officially flying firefighting. What is, I don't even know that's the correct terminology, but I'm just going to go with it. What is like a standard season, a standard day, you know, like a week? Like, what do you guys do? How do you do it? How do you get there? Kind of all the logistics around it. Go ahead and talk about that. Okay. It's, uh, our season is, is pretty much a summer season. Uh, so, you know, being a Texas based company, we, Oftentimes we'll have a early Texas fire season that mm-hmm. might be February, March, or April, or uh, something like that. It usually lasts for a few weeks, uh, but the 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 biggest part of our season is out west, and we usually start somewhere 
you know, mid-May to June. Okay. And we go through, and we're usually coming home around mid-October. Dang. So. And you're gone that whole entire time, every single day. Yeah. Wow. Yep. You're gone the whole entire time. So. You leave. I mean, if you, you know, for me, I, I enjoy the seasonal part of it because yeah. I know when I'm gone, I'm I'm gone working, and when I come home, I kind of know what you know the amount of time I got home. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, uh, you know, they let us know. Usually, sometimes we'll have a heads up, or a lot of times we'll have a heads up when they're going to send us out, and uh, we know when to be ready to do that. Sometimes, you know, especially you know Texas fire season stuff. It's like they call and say, hey, we need you here tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so, but each airplane has a has a ground crew that goes with it. Okay. So when we go out, each airplane has a truck, a trailer that mix, that they can mix the stuff we put out mm-hmm. in and a driver. So we, they send us out, uh, they assign us to a base. We stay on base with the driver and our equipment, and we basically sit around. It's, it's similar, I guess, to being at a at a fire a fire department <laughs> or a firefighter. You, we you wait at, for the call. We wait for the call exactly. Uh, uh, so we funny. sit and uh, we sit around. We, we usually usually nine o'clock in the morning is when we usually have to be at at the base. Uh, we do our pre-flights and, you know, get ready for the day. We have a briefing. Uh, they let us know the weather conditions and what, what we can expect. And we sit there and we wait. Dang. And, uh, they, you know, at some point, you know, during the day or whatever, that uh, if they have a fire dispatch, we'll call the, the base, the tanker base and say, we need so many aircraft or, They'll they'll tell you which aircraft they know. They know where they know where each aircraft is throughout the country, and so they'll uh, say we need. In, in my case, my tanker number is Tanker Eight Seven One. We need Tanker Eight Seven One and Tanker So and So for this fire, and they'll print us out a dispatch form as a let long, the name of the fire, uh, any information that we might need. Uh, to know about before we get there and from there they they hand us you know we get in the airplane we have flight suits <laughs> so we have flight suits we have helmets yeah you know boots basically kind of the whole uh, fighter pilot get up yeah you guys are like fighter pilot like top gun out there <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i guess so yeah that's awesome <laughs> so and we we take off and we head towards the fire and um you know from there we so that's that's basically the life yeah. you know, the day-to-day the season so what is more challenging would you say would you say fighting fires in texas or maybe the big raging fires out west uh well they're both challenging but i'd say the just because of the conditions out west the yeah. western fires are are more challenging um last year was a pretty bad one wasn't it it was it, it was a very yeah very bad fire season we yeah. we fought we started fighting fire in Texas last year in January. Okay. Dang. And, uh, so it was not only, I mean, it was a long fire season for us. And, uh, then we went out West and flew our tails off out there, uh, for the rest of the, for the rest of the summer. So it was, it, yeah, it was really bad. Which fire were you sent to out West? Cause there's one in Southern California, one more Northern, or was there more in Colorado or which ones were you fighting? Uh, well, I, I spent the majority of my time in, uh, Northern Nevada. Okay. So, uh, I fought quite a few fires around Reno. Mm-hmm. Uh, fought a fire called the Martin fire out of, uh, Winnemucca, which I think you've been to Winnemucca. I have been to Winnemucca, the most random place in the world, but I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a seat, there's a seat base there at Winnemucca. No way. <laughs> uh, I think when you went through there, it probably a few weeks after we had, we had, our season ended. Oh wow! So I uh, just missed you. Yeah, <laughs> and I remember when I was uh, I was taking pictures in rifle, and I think that you messaged me saying like, "Hey, I'm I'm fly- my outfit's flying there right now." <laughs> so yeah, the, well, yeah. The, the 
the picture that you had taken yeah. and posted, that was uh, our comp- one of our company's airplanes. That's crazy. Yeah, you guys are so, going crazy. When I stayed there, uh, the, when I got to the hotel, they warned us that the, the big fire was like, I don't know, like five or 10 miles away, but they're like, we're pretty sure it's not coming this way. They say it's under control. And I was like, uh, can I get another hotel? <laughs> it's like, I don't really want to be 10 miles away from a huge fire. It's like, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, uh, they were busy in, in Colorado too. Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, we fought a fire in Northern uh, Nevada there out of Winnemucca that was 435,000 acres. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. So, yeah, there was a lot of retardant uh, put down there. Now, and, for uh, me, for me being someone that doesn't know how big fires are, is that um, like a standard size fire? Is that a remarkably large fire, or is that kind of um, normal? No, that's a remarkably large fire. All that right. was actually the largest. Uh, I believe. I believe I'm correct on this. That I believe that was the largest fire in Nevada's history. Dang, that's crazy. So yeah, and it spread that. You know, it spread to get that big in, you know, a very short amount of time. Did they ever figure out how it started? Yeah, it was, uh, it actually got started on 4th of July night. Oh, no. Uh, a couple of kids out, you know, lighting fireworks and, uh, caught it on fire. And, uh, it was probably midnight, one or two o'clock in the morning when the fire started. And by the time, you know, the next morning rolled around and they could start getting resources on it. Yeah. It had already spread uh, a few thousand acres. Dang. Just like that. And then, yeah. And then, uh, with, with the type of fuel, fuels that are out there being, being grass. Yeah. You know, that stuff, if a, if a wind picks up, it just takes off. So it's dry out there too. From what I remember, it's windy and dry. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it go, you know, once a fire gets lit, and the wind start starts pushing it, it'll just go and go and go. Could you imagine yeah. being the person that started that fire? Like, hey, I mean, all of us, everyone listening to this has played with fireworks. Everyone has messed around with fireworks or fire in general. And it's just like, you don't really understand, understand the severity of what fire can do, which I know you know because you're in the industry. But it's like, it could just be a kid out there just lighting matches. And all of a sudden, the wind catches in the right moment and boom, you have a 500 acre fire or whatever, 500,000 acre fire. It's crazy. Yeah, and it, it's a serious deal out there because I mean it's it's not just like you know a lot of places where you you know it's green all you know it's green during the summer and you know even if a fire did start it's probably not going to do much right uh, out there you know everything is you know especially by the middle of the summer everything everything's going without rain for yeah. a long time uh, everything's dry and anything will burn. So, Anything. you know, it, it, it becomes a, <laughs> yeah. it becomes a, a, a huge deal and, yeah. it, it, you know, they can get, you know, be, become, it can become, you know, a criminal, you know, offense I and bet. felony charges and, and jail time and, and, you know, it can go, it just depending on whether, you know, some people do it intentionally. Yeah. You know, there's, there's arson, arson arsonists out there that go around and set fires intentionally and and they usually get caught mm-hmm. and uh you know the, for those people you know it's it's you know it's jail time and for for people who didn't intentionally do it they they still have there's still some consequences but you know they do take it take into account that hey this was an accident yeah it's an you unfortunate know. accident it really is but yeah, it's like there still have to be some kind of consequences or reprimands yeah we we fought a fire uh, a couple of years ago up uh, just north. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Cedar City. No, uh, I haven't. Utah, Cedar uh-huh. City, Utah. And uh, there's a, a little area up, kind of up the mountains there to the east called uh, Brian Head. And there's a bunch of, I believe there's a bunch of ski, re- uh, ski resorts and ski slopes and stuff up there. And this guy started the fire. And he was outside one day and there was still snow on the ground. Uh, this was very early in the fire season. He was out there torching his weeds on his on his driveway. So with one of those little propane torches. Oh, jeez! I can just say, have you it, seen Elon Musk's like not real flamethrowers, but they're considered flamethrowers. It's like I can imagine this guy with a flamethrower out there, like trying to torch his weeds. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so, and he and he started a fire, and oh, I mean dang. this fire burned all season. Oh. <laughs> so and took out 
you know, all kinds of, you know, homes like in, you know, multi-million dollar homes up there. And Yeah, there's some nice uh, houses in those areas. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, he, like I said, he, he, he never intended to, yeah. for that to happen, but you know, it did. <laughs> that, that's going to be a reputation he has forever because, you know, the small community is like, and that's where Dave lives. Dave is the one that burnt down 600,000 yeah. acres. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a good, not yeah. a good deal. Not a good deal at all. That's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, one thing that interests me is what, so like, say you're over in Winnemucca, you're fighting a fire. It's the, the worst it's ever been. What, what are you doing? What, uh, what kind of, how do you stay safe? Like kind of talk about from takeoff, you load up. How many times do you take off and land in a day and just kind of like a go through the actual day of fighting that fire in Winnemucca when it was at its strongest? Uh, well, uh, I'll just, I'll just use, uh, that Martin fire as an example. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, as far as how many loads we do in a day depends on how far we are from the fire. So that fire, I believe, if I remember correctly, is about 40 miles one way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're doing about a 40 minute round trip in that case. So we're doing about, we're doing a load about every 45 minutes to an hour. Okay. And, um, we we're limited to eight hours of flight time in a day. So 8.0, you know, is the longest we can go. Um, so we go out and we do have limitations built into the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have wind limits of say like a 30 knot uh, wind and this is at the fire. Uh, so 30 knot wind, uh, no more than if it's more than a 15 knot gust spread, uh, you know, conditions like that, we're actually supposed to, they're supposed to call it and shut it, you know, shut it down. Oh, dang. But the, you know, we, we've, it's pretty common for us to fly in 30, you know, 30 knot winds. And, you know, you know, the, the conditions are usually hot, bumpy, you know, not your ideal flying conditions. Yeah. Not your ideal flying conditions, but. You know, it's, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of safety built into it. That's good. Cause it's dangerous uh, flying. Even with ag flying, yeah. it's dangerous, just inherently yeah. dangerous. And then when you go ahead and add huge fires with lots of smoke. Now, do you guys fly through the smoke to drop the, the retardant or do you fly above the smoke? How does that work? Uh, no, we, we try to stay clear of flying through the smoke. Okay. Uh, you know, most of the time that's, uh, that's, uh, plenty doable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's, common for us to fly through a little bit of drift smoke or something like that, but you definitely don't want to get caught up in like the, you know, the bulk of the smoke or anything. That's just, that's not good for, well, you know, obviously visibility. Yeah. <laughs> and, obviously. Then, uh, <laughs> and then the, the other is you don't want to, uh, suck any ash into the engine. Yeah. It's not good for the you turbine, know? right? Yeah. That's not, not yeah. a good thing. Um, but, uh, outside of a few sp- circumstances you know we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna be in the smoke yeah uh we're we're what we do is we we put out primarily retardant mm-hmm. uh, that's the red stuff that people see coming out of the airplane okay. and it's uh basically it's mixed with water and uh we put that out along either along the fl- fire line or or out ahead of the fire, fire uh, line okay or, gotcha. and, and, the, and it's it's designed to slow the fire down so that the ground crews can get in there and, and try to stay caught up with it. Okay. Interesting. Cause I always yeah. thought that the retardant was dropped on the fire to put out the fire, but it's more of to kind of contain the fire to get it in a certain area. So the, the ground people can then go ahead and get it out. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, I mean, and there, there's times when we, when we are putting it directly on the flame. Yeah. Uh, but more often than not, we're we're putting it in a in a spot where it just slows the fire down. Okay, and is that the same with the big fire tankers that you see flying around, like the huge airplanes? Are they doing the same thing, or are they more yes, try to put? We're, okay, yeah, we're we're putting out the same stuff. All right, uh, what, a lot of times uh, we're, lo- oh, we're loading out of the same airports. Oh, really? What is yeah. uh, kind of? Let's see. I don't ask this. So, like, how do you guys do? You guys work together? Are they part of the same company? Are they part of a different company? Do you guys work in tandem with each other, or is it all just depends on the type of the fire that's there? Uh, we we work together. We're not the same companies. Uh, we we each 
you know, most of the companies in this are private or contractors, mm-hmm. you know, with, with contracts. So like in our case, we have uh, contracts for seats mm-hmm. and there's several companies that have that. Then the heavies, that's what we call the bigger airplanes is, yeah. is, he- is heavies. And uh, they have their companies and, you know, kind of the same type of deal. Uh, but yeah, we, we work together all the time. Uh, when we go to a fire, we've got, you know, seats, heavies, helicopters. Uh, we got the, what they call the VLAT, which is the DC 10 and the 747. Yeah. Those uh, things are so, huge. Yeah. Those things are huge. Yeah. You show up on a fire and we, we, uh, worked with them several times last year and, you know, you just kind of have to sit out there and hold, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, right. for them to get get their drop yeah. in and then and you go do your thing. Then you go do, do our thing. So yeah. yeah, we're, we all work together. We're all out there trying to accomplish the same thing. That's and, good. Yeah. What uh? so I was in Jackson hole, Wyoming with my wife. We were driving to Denver to go catch a flight back. All our flights got messed up in Jackson hole, but we drove through an active fireplace and they, I mean, there's signs all over the place. Like be careful, watch out. Like they said it was safe, but they still let everyone pass. Do you guys like, can you drop your retardant on people? Do you make sure no one's there? Like, how does that all work? Uh, no, we're, we're not, we're not supposed to drop on people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, when, when we're, uh, okay, I'll, I'll kind of set up how, how this works when we, yeah, when we're going and, and actually work on the fire. The, the fire, uh, so TFR, you know, once a fire gets going and right. they decide that, you know, this, we need to stay on this for a little while. They'll set it up as a TFR. So they set up an airspace over the fire. Okay. You know, so we actually talk to what's called an air attack going in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but air attack is basically like ATC. So we get clearance, we get an altimeter setting, we get an altitude to enter. Uh, and then we go in and they give us a description of where they want us to drop. Okay. And so we circle overhead at an orbit altitude and they give us a, once they've decided where they want us to drop and we've identified that, you know, we've, we recognize the, the target and everything they give us, they tell us we're clear to drop. They have to make sure the line is clear, which means the people are out of the way, <laughs> uh, you know, machinery is out of the way. Yeah. And so once we drop down to, you know, actually get rid of the load. Yeah. We have to, you know, there has to be a few steps going through to make sure that everything's out of the way. <laughs> I don't and, know why I can just imagine like some guy, like some older guy out taking his dog out to go to the bathroom and he's like looking up yeah. like, man, it's a nice day, just a little bit of a fire. And all of a sudden the air tractor flies over and dumps all this yeah. red fiery turn well, on I'm, it, I'm telling you, it's happened. I bet. <laughs> it, it's happened. And, uh, you know, for the, for the firefighters on the ground, you know, they actually, a lot of them consider it like a badge of honor. To get dropped you know, on? <laughs> to get dropped on, but we're not supposed to do that. Yeah. I guess, you know, back in the day, a long time ago, you know, they probably didn't have as many rules. And, yeah, you know, definitely they, not. They, but, you know, today, you know, we, we really is better off for everybody, you know, especially, you know, in this lawsuit world <laughs> to, <laughs> to stay away from dropping on people yeah. or, or things like that. So. That would uh, suck. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we, I think at some point or another, uh, we probably all painted something red that wasn't supposed to be red. <laughs> oh yeah. I bet. But, Guaranteed. but you know, you do more, more good than harm though. I can guarantee you that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, um, so let's talk about, so you fly an air tractor now, right? Yes. What is the most amount of takeoff and landings in a day? I remember we're talking one time and I, I don't know if this is true. I might have made this up in my head, but I feel like you told me you had like some like 40 takeoff and landings in one day. Uh, I haven't, uh, personally, but, yeah. uh, you know, I, I probably, I've probably done 20, you know, Jeez. 20, 20, 25. And I'm out here complaining when I have like four or five legs, like, <laughs> like yeah. crosswinds and you're just up there constantly up and down, up and down, no. up and down. Now that's in the ag world. Yeah. Uh, in the in the in seats, uh, you know, if you fly all day, like if you if you time out, 
yeah. on eight, eight hours, you've probably done probably anywhere from six to 10 mm-hmm. takeoff and landings. Okay. Um, so, you know, our average, I think our average turnaround just, you know, industry wide is about 45 minutes to an hour. Okay. Um, so, you know, probably anywhere from six to 10 landings in a day. That's um, some tough flying, man. Yeah. And I bet you guys uh, are exhausted. Yeah. Uh, well, it is, it is, it is tire, uh, yeah. tiring. I mean, you know, in the, the ag, you know, the difference is say like the, from the ag world to the seats, you know, we, we don't fly say as many hours in a day, mm-hmm. but you know, you're most of the time you're in the mountains. Uh, you're dealing with usually, you know, nastier winds, uh, you're doing a lot of radio communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just the, I think the flying along with some of the mental load, you know, takes, takes a toll on you. So, uh, it's, you know, it's a lot of fun, uh, the flying itself, uh, but you know, it, it can be draining. I can only imagine how like yeah, I mean it's I mean if you like I said like I fly a corporate jet and when I have to do four or five landings I'm exhausted. It's like the most to me the most exhausting part of the job is the constantly doing turnarounds. You're constantly thinking about stuff. You're constantly re rethinking about what you're going to do, and it's just very mentally tasking. And to do that eight six and I mean I'm sure like you said some people have done it way more than that. It could really kind of to, to weigh heavy on you. Yeah. And it's like, if you get a fire that's real close, you know, I mean, you, it takes you a, just a pull of a trigger in a few seconds to get rid of load. Yeah. You know, so if you get a fire that's say 30 miles or closer, yeah, I mean, you're, you're turning around pretty quick, Yeah, you know, and then you get a fire that's say 20 miles or 15 miles. I mean, you're basically talking to, you know, the guys on the fire, you know, when, as soon as you take off yeah, and then, you know, you're going out, you're dumping a load, you're coming back, going out. So, I mean, you might be doing four loads an hour. Dang. And, uh, I mean, that's not the norm, but you know, it happens. How much is in a uh, load? Oh, uh, we normally, uh, I mean, like weight normally wise. We, we can, uh, weight wise or gallons, uh, whichever one gallons. Okay. So, <laughs> so we, uh, we typically, uh, if we, we start a little bit lower with our with a full fuel load. Mm-hmm. Uh, we typically start out about 650 gallons, and then Dang. by the end of a fuel run, which uh, we can go about four hours on fuel, mm-hmm. uh, we're up to 750 to 800 gallons. We can carry 800 gallons. Okay, uh, and that's uh, the retardant mixed with the water weighs like 9.2 pounds per gallon. Oh, dang! So it's heavy. Uh, yeah, it's heavy. We our max gross on an eight hundred two is sixteen thousand pounds. Dang, that's a small so, plane to weigh sixteen thousand pounds. Yeah, I mean, you know, like yeah. it's not small, but well, it, it, uh, it's crazy. Yeah, if you it, whenever you if you're if you're ever out uh, west this summer and you run up you you end up on a base where there's seats, you, you ought to go up. I don't know if you have ever been up next to an eight hundred two, but but you ought to go up and stand next to one. One of the biggest things people say when they stand next to one that they, they've seen them flying around and they're like, yeah, but they stand next to one and think, man, this is a lot bigger than what it yeah. looked like. So, yeah, I mean, in comparison to what we fly with, it's it's pretty small. Yeah, but uh, it's still a, a heavy airplane. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. like you said, in comparison to the seven forty seven, it's definitely small, but so is everything <laughs> yeah. else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Now we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but I mentioned how what you do is very dangerous, and how or not very dangerous, but it's calculated risks. But there are dangers that some other pilots don't have to deal with. Um, would you say that there are are there a lot of accidents associated with this kind of flying? Is this, is that very common, or is it a pretty safe safe safety record and flying record? Uh, it's pretty good, pretty good safety record. Uh, good. I don't, I don't have a, I don't have really any, any good hard numbers to, yeah. to give you, but, uh, it's definitely improved That's over good. the years. I mean, there was a time when, you know, if you talk to guys who've been in it for a long time, whether they were flying seats or heavies or what have you, they were, I mean, wrecking airplanes pretty often. Yeah. And, uh, of course a lot of it was, especially in the heavy world, they were, they were, using old 
like military airplanes and stuff that were just structurally, you know, not good. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they've, uh, they pretty well kind of weeded those out and, uh, you know, at, you know, the, the industry itself is a pretty safe industry. That's good. Uh, and you know, we don't see very many accidents and, you know, definitely fatal accidents anymore. That's good. That's good to hear. Cause I mean, I mean, I don't know, just thinking about it myself, like, I feel like that would have to be, cause you guys have to, you risk your lives to like, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, well, we have to put this fire out. You got to do it at all risks, you know? Well, yeah. And you've got to kind of, like I said, there's, there's a lot of safety built into it. And then, you know, what's very, uh, standard across the industry is, you know, lives are more important than property. So when we're out fighting fire, you know, a lot of times, you know, they've evacuated the areas that, you know, are, are, you know, have a population, Mm -hmm. you know, they've neighborhoods or, you know, whatever needs to be evacuated, they've evacuated. And a lot of times what we're trying to do is, you know, we'll be trying to save structures and, you know, property and, and stuff like that, which is important to try to do. But at some point, you know, when it's really nasty conditions or something, you've yeah. got to make the call on when is this good and when is it not worth it? Right. And, no, uh, you know, those calls are made a lot, you know, and, you know, the majority of the time, I mean, I, you know, we're not, I don't really consider us to be out there just putting it all on the line and, you know, you know, risking our lives, you know, right, right. on the edge, you know, it's, we're out there, we're trying to do a good job. We're trying to say what we can, but all, you know, all with the idea that we're going to go home at night <laughs> or we're going to go back to the base every night. Yeah. And, uh, cause it's a, it's a really bad deal when something goes wrong and somebody gets hurt or killed. Yeah. You know, that's just not a good situation to be in for anybody that's a part of the, a part of the industry. No, definitely not. Yeah. Definitely not. Well, on a lighter note, <laughs> yeah. let's, um, what, so you, is your goal to fly the heavies? Cause is that like a natural, natural progression to like work up in the heavies or do most people kind of um, stay in the air tractor? Well, no, most people, you know, you could, you know, kind of go wherever you wanted to go in the industry, I guess. But for me, you know, the seats, I just love the seats, you know, yeah. I love being in the seats. Um, so, you know, the heavies are, you know, for some people, probably the best way to go yeah. and a, a good thing to do. That's cool. Uh, and I think they're cool. You know, I think, being, I've, especially now that they've gotten into the jet, the jets, and they're using the BAE 146. Yeah. 146s, Where was the RJ. I? Oh, miss, oh, somewhere in Montana. They have a big base there. I can't remember. Oh. Probably, uh, Missoula? Missoula. Yes. Yeah, I landed so in Missoula, Montana and I saw like 10 of them and I was like, Whoa, that's cool. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's one of the, now one of the companies is based out of Missoula. It's okay. called Neptune. Yeah. And uh, so you were probably, yeah, that's where they're based. And there's a, a, I'm pretty sure there's a tanker base there too. Yeah. I saw those uh, like that. So cool. Yeah. So they, they're using those and you know, the, most of the piston round engine heavy tankers are, are gone. Uh, so you know, for me, I, I enjoy the seats. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, you know, you never know, I guess, but you never know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the heavies are, um, that's kind of, they've got their own little, own little world. Yeah. And, I bet. Own little community, yeah. own little world. Yeah. Oh, cool, and, man. I got a, a quick rapid fire section for you where I'm just going to ask you a bunch of random questions and you say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. You ready for it? Yeah, sure. All right. What's your favorite airplane you've ever flown? Oh, I'd have to say the 802. All right. What is your, just your favorite airplane in general? It could be a military plane. It could be a commercial plane. It could just be a, a random Cessna that you've seen. Oh, uh, I don't well, I have to say the P-51. Yeah. What is the ugliest plane you've ever seen? Oh, geez. Uh, you know, I've listened to your 
podcast <laughs> a couple times, and I'm going to have to go with you on this one. The the, Piaggio. Pia- the flying catfish. All right, cool. Yeah, I, I got another. Know, one. Probably, that thing's probably fastest. Oh, it is. Out, it is a remarkable plane. It can do some amazing things. I just don't like the design of it, and I get a lot yes. of hate for it. But it's like it's yeah. just to each his own. I mean, I can like a plane, not like a plane. Same to you, but it's just I just think it's an ugly plane. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Let's see. What is your favorite airline livery? Uh, I have to say American. American, yeah, I love that tail. What's your least favorite airline livery? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, the the I'd, well, I'd have to say the old American. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the silver on those uh, MD eighties. <laughs> they did not age very well with that. So with that, a, a polished yeah. aluminum. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's yeah. see. What is your favorite airport to fly in and out of? Uh, Monroe, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, just any airport. Yeah, any airport. Okay, uh, Rifle, Colorado. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it's a cool little airport. It can be tricky sometimes too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What's your least favorite airport you have to fly into? Maybe like the most challenging. Oh, least favorite airport. Oh, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say least favorite. Winnemucca? <laughs> uh, no, Winnemucca is not my least. Yeah. Uh, uh, the most, there's a couple of them that, that are really challenging. And uh, one's Durango, Colorado. Yeah, been there. Uh, for for us, it, it is just because of density altitude. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of in a bowl. But Reno, Nevada is kind of a tricky yeah. one for us. But I, uh just off the top of my head, I'd have to say say one of those two. Okay, that works. What's uh, one thing you always have to have on you while you're flying? Uh, always have to have on me while like, I'm flying. I don't know if you guys use four flight or you have to have oh, sunglasses uh, or you need water, Gatorade, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always got four flight. Yeah. Um, uh, this year, I've been informed that we're going to have these little tracker things. <laughs> so I guess if we get removed from the airplane for some reason or another out in the wilderness, they can find us. <laughs> oh, like a spot, like a, uh, I think like a GPS tracker. Yeah. 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 That might be important. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, uh, that might become my new favorite thing. <laughs> I don't blame you at all. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite food to eat when you're connecting on an airport at an airport? Uh, my favorite food to eat. Oh man, I'm trying to stay away from a lot of this right now. Is uh, <laughs> I, man, I, it's hard for me to walk past the Cinnabon. Yeah, there you go. The classic <laughs> Cinnabon. I feel like that uh, was the original like crappy airport food for me. The Cinnabon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And whenever you smell them, you can't not go up and like buy oh, one. Man, it's, it's terrible. Uh, yeah, it's like walking by Bojangles or Krispy Kreme when they have the red light on. It's like, well, I guess I'm buying a twelve pack of donuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dang it. I'm going to re- regret this in an hour. Yeah, exactly. What is, who is kind of like your favorite aviator of all time? Maybe like history wise, or do you have a favorite one right now? Oh man. Well, uh, you know, the, the short answer to that is, is my dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, this is one of the best things about what I'm doing right now is I'm getting to work, work with my dad. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, I'm a uh, very fortunate in that aspect, but, you know, aside from that, you know, I mean, you know, guys that everybody would know, I guess, be like a Bob Hoover or something yeah. like that. You can't not hate Bob Hoover. He's like, yeah, the, I know. <laughs> he's the man. A, he was the man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, cool, man. Those are all the questions I have for you. I only want one more thing from you, and that is for you to answer this question. If you have, uh, so say someone listens to this podcast and they are very interested in flying seats or they want to become firefighting, fly heavies, all that kind of stuff. What kind of, um, tips would you give them to, to start out like in their training? They're just brand new pilot. They want to become a, a firefighter pilot. What should they do? Uh, the, uh, the main thing, it, well, you know, get through training, go through all your private instrument commercial. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, tailwheel time is, is, is big. You know, they need to go, you know, get their tailwheel endorsement as soon yeah. as they can and get in into flying that as tailwheel airplanes as much as they can. Does it matter what they get their endorsement in? Like, I'm sure you guys want it in something more than just like a, a J3 or something like that. No, uh, I mean, you know, 
just the endorsement and then the the more you can get some more higher performance tail airplanes so like 180s 185s uh what about ponies towing gliders and stuff like that well uh, yeah that that's that would be a a great way to go too uh my actual first ag airplane was a uh piper brave which is a step up from a pawnee oh really uh so yeah those, those would be good little airplanes to get into anytime you could get into tailwheel or you know get get in with somebody that does ag work and and work your way up into to an ag seat cool that's awesome um let's see that is all the questions i have for you believe it or not <laughs> wow i'm finally done unless you have anything else that you want to say or uh bring up at all in case we missed anything that you want to talk about Oh no! I, I that sounds sounds good to me. It's time's <laughs> time's flown by. So I, I know, man. It's easy to talk about this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, hey, Chris, I appreciate you coming on. Not many people know that we actually have we've passed we've crossed paths a lot in this career yeah. without even really knowing it. I mean, we were both at Airwood Aviation pretty much at the same time. We've met each other there, and then we were both kind of just randomly walked into an ATP CTP course in yeah. Cincinnati, Ohio, or Wilmington, Ohio, yeah. and we're like, "Wait, you look really familiar." Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> so that it's was, crazy. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it's this aviation world yeah. is a small, uh, small world. Absolutely. And then so. we both got put in a, a DC nine full motion simulator with a, a crazy old Eastern Airways guys uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that yeah, was doing was the most great. random things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's cool. And it's, uh, just always, yeah. I mean, you never know who you're going to run into or who you might be able to, to reach out to. So always have good contacts and stay in contact with people, but I appreciate you coming on the episode. I think that this is something that, isn't really talked about. I mean, I talk about there's different avi- there's different avenues in aviation, like corporate and regionals and majors, but I don't necessarily talk a lot about kind of the other stuff you can do, like ag pilot or seats flying, like you said, and there's so much more that you can use aviation for. So I think it's really cool to talk to you and kind of get your experience and to figure out a way for people to get into this world. Because like you said, the average age of these pilots is 60 years old. They're going to need pilots as well, just like the, the airlines are need pilots, just like corporations are going to need pilots. You guys are going to need pilots too so i really hope yeah. someone can listen to this and think hey that's something i want to do and if someone is listening to this and they want to reach out to you what's the best way for them to get in contact with you oh they can uh, get in contact me with me either on um you know facebook or uh they can email me uh they can call me any, anything what's, uh, what's your email if you can put it out there for them it's uh daniel and that Daniel Aviation. That's D A N I E L L. Remember the two L's because I forgot. (laughs) The two L's. Aviation Inc. at gmail.com. Cool. Well, perfect, man. Chris, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. Thanks so much. Uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to releasing it. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you having me. No problem. I hope you have a good one and wish you the best this season. All right. Thanks. Thanks, man. See you. And that is a wrap of episode number 61 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Like I said earlier, if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. We are so close to 300 reviews, so please leave us a five-star review there. Check out our Instagram page, at Pilot to Pilot, or Twitter page, at Pilot to Pilot. Starting to build that up a little bit. You can also email us if you have any suggestions of who we should have on the show, Pilot to Pilot HQ at gmail.com. And check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Pilot to Pilot. Aviation, I hope you guys have a great day, and as always, happy flying.